Radio Krikon. Hi there and welcome to episode 5 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is series 1, episode 5, The House of Monkeys, and that's the final episode of series 1. Some of you have probably got to this point and are thinking, hang on a moment, I thought Jonathan Creek was meant to be a designer of tricks for a magician yet we haven't seen any of that kind of thing yet. What the hell is going on? Well, due to budget restrictions in the first series, all the magician stuff had to be cut out of the scripts. However, due to the success of the show, there was more money available in series two. So when we get into that, we'll start seeing magician Adam Klaus, and there are some pretty funny subplots and stories that arise through him. As ever, you really ought to watch the episode before listening to this pod episode, not only because things will make a lot more sense and you'll get the references, but because Jonathan Creek's brilliant. Just do it. If you haven't watched any Jonathan Creek before, look, just piss off, okay? I've warned you about this. The House of Monkeys aired on Saturday 7th of June 1997. Smooth-voiced Aussie, get us underway. Episode Synopsis Dr. Elliot Strange picks up his mail from the doormat, takes it into his office and sifts through it as he eats his breakfast. He's unperturbed when a massive gorilla wanders into the room. His wife Ingrid, that's Elliot's wife, not the gorilla's, it's really weird looking and presumably single, comes in and scolds Elliot for letting the gorilla eat the junk mail. Ingrid, a doctor, then mentions to her son Jordan and daughter-in-law Kathy that her first appointment that morning is with the son of her friend, Sally Creek. Ingrid inspects Jonathan and, while making small talk, asks him whether he has anyone special in his life. He replies no. As the inspection progresses, she gets him naked on the bed. To inspect him, of course. Back at the house, Elliot puts something into an envelope, seals it up, and starts dictating into his dictation machine. That's dictation machine, not dictaphone, okay? Dictaphone was the name of a company. Did you know that dictaphone, the company, was founded by Alexander Graham Bell? It's true. And along with colleagues, he also invented the first proper dictation machine. Anyway, as we watch several of the monkeys arsing about outside, we hear Elliot apparently being attacked in the office, and a massive kerfuffle ensues. He screams for help, stuff appears to get thrown around the place, and then suddenly, all goes silent. Ingrid is just returning home and can't get into the office. She runs around the side of the house, looks through the window, and sees her husband dead on the floor, a massive sword sticking out of his back. At Maddie's flat, Jonathan is measuring his heart rate using a pulse meter, having been told by Ingrid that he needs to get a bit fitter. Maddie listens on, eating Maltesers straight out of the freezer. At the monkey house, the police can't get into the office either and end up sawing the grill off the window in order to do so. As they try to figure out what the hell has happened, they find Elliot's dictaphone. Sorry, dictation machine. Jonathan receives a phone call from Ingrid. The police can't figure out what's happened to Elliot, so she's wanting him to come over for a look. 
Ingrid tells the police that Elliot will have locked the office door to keep the paper-munching gorilla out of the room. She also explains that, due to Elliot's high profile in the world of medical research, he wasn't a very popular man with the animal rights folks. Jonathan and Maddie arrive and have a look around the office. There are no apparent clues, although he does find a fairly hefty gash on the edge of the desk. Oi, stop laughing. Three books from the top shelf of the bookcase also appear to have been thrown across the room. Jordan Strange starts putting his weird theories across about Amityville Horror and how perhaps the books flew across the room of their own accord. There then follows an extremely strange scene where Jonathan walks in on the gorilla taking a crap on the toilet before washing its hands in a very civilised manner. Maddie talks to Ingrid about Elliot and monkeys. Then Ingrid tells Maddie that Jonathan is very attracted to her. She can tell this by his body language. As they all eat dinner, Jonathan points out that nothing about Elliot's death makes any sense. If he killed himself and wanted to make it look like murder, why do it in a locked room? If someone killed him and wanted to make it look like suicide, why stab him in the back? Everyone heads off to bed. Maddie later slips into Jonathan's room and into his bed. She whispers to him that she knows he's attracted to her and they start kissing. Things are about to get really hot and heavy when she finds out that he's wearing the pulse meter on his ear. She assumes he's put this on to measure his heart rate while they're getting it on and is furious at him for assuming that she was just going to come through here and get into his bed, even though she did. She kicks him out of his own room and as he's wandering along the corridor, the gorilla appears from nowhere and, apropos of nothing, goes absolutely tonto. It chases Jonathan, who falls down the stairs, and it then leaps off the landing to its death. The next morning, Maddie goes for a poke around in Kathy's bedroom and finds a diary. Meanwhile, in the office, Jonathan finds a chewed up envelope and looks through the bin for other envelopes and then starts to realise something. Everyone gathers and Maddie reads from the diary which reveals that Kathy and Elliot, i.e. father-in-law and daughter-in-law, slept together. Jonathan rakes through some computer disks in another room searching for something which he eventually finds. The police return to tell everyone that they haven't made any progress in finding out what happened, but it turns out Jonathan has. Elliot had been sent a copy of a book to sign and a stamped addressed envelope in which to return it. When he licked the envelope to seal it, he took on board some weird hallucinogenic substance that the sender, an aggrieved animal rights activist, had smeared on it. This caused him to quickly go mad, seeing things and thinking he was being attacked. He grabbed a sword and swung it around, lodging it on the side of the desk before climbing up the bookshelf to try and escape. He then fell backwards off the bookshelf and onto the sword. Nobody else was even there. Later on, the gorilla went into the office, picked up the envelope from the bin, chewed it and also got a taste of the bad acid or whatever it was. It too went completely tojo and ended up hurling itself off the landing. The episode ends with Jonathan reading Maddie's account about all this and about the conviction of the person who carried out the crime. As he's doing so, she's unwrapping an orthopaedic chair, which Jonathan has been given as a gift from Jordan. As she reclines in it, he sticks his hand down her blouse, and it looks like the pair of them are finally about to do it properly. But actually, he's just measuring her heart rate. What a guy. 
episode analysis. Much like episode 2, Jack in the Box, the central mystery here was a question of how a killer could escape from a locked room having killed someone. In this instance, we have an extra layer of uncertainty though because it seems completely impossible for Elliot to have killed himself because you cannot drive a sword through your own back. Or can you? When you watch a mystery set in a house that has several pet monkeys wandering about, you do naturally assume that perhaps one or more of them were involved in the murder somehow, and at one point Maddie even suggests this herself, but it turns out not to be the case, it was just a red herring. Or a red arsed monkey, I suppose. Two particularly famous faces in the cast this week. Simon Day played Jordan Strange, he has been in all manner of things, but to people around my age, is possibly best known for playing various roles on The Fast Show. His characters have included the competitive dad, Billy Bleach the pub know-it-all, and Divine Joe the environmental activist. Annette Crosby played Ingrid and she of course has long been associated with David Renwick through her portrayal as Margaret, long-suffering wife of Victor Meldrew in One Foot in the Grave. There are quite a few similarities with their characters, uh, mainly in the exasperated reactions. I really enjoyed Kathy, you have the body of a woman and the brain of a sexually stunted newt. Now, I feel like I go on about this all the time, but many of my favourite scenes are where Jonathan and Maddie get annoyed with one another, and Caroline Quentin's performance in this episode was really amazing. Kicking Jonathan out of his own bed and telling him not to make love to her without a heavy goods licence was great stuff. The pair of them briefly got very intimate, although things went awry quite quickly. In most TV shows I think they would probably have gone all the way and that would have been them together properly, but it's much funnier to keep them apart and the tension high and I think this was a great decision. In terms of foibles, I reckon the acid on envelope gum method of murder might struggle to work. I'm no chemist, but would it really have killed Elliot Strange were it not for the accident with the sword? Seems a bit unlikely. The gorilla on the toilet scene was just completely ludicrous, and indeed every other scene the gorilla popped up in was a bit undermined by its somewhat unbelievable appearance. Spoiler alert, it wasn't a real gorilla, by the way. That's it for the episode analysis, and now it's time to alight from, i.e. get off, the train, i.e. this section. I should really have reworded this as we move things along to the celebration of Location Information Station. We'll start with something different this week, an appeal for information. Despite some very in-depth research into the location of the main house from this episode, I've been unable to locate it so far. The closest I've come to concrete information is in the autobiography of Simon Day, who plays Jordan in the episode. He makes reference to getting picked up on the first morning of shooting and, quote, heading towards Oxfordshire, but that's as narrowed down as I can get. It's a big house in large grounds, as many buildings are on Jonathan Creek. And if you have any information or leads, then please do get in touch with the show. Get your creek on at gmail.com. 
a location I am aware of that does need to be shoehorned into this week's episode because it's the last time it appears in the show, is the flat Maddie lives in during all of series one. We see it in most if not all episodes. She's left high and dry on the pavement outside with the wardrobe and the reconstituted corpse. Jonathan removes the wheel clamp outside in Jack in the Box. And in this episode, she and Jonathan have a few scenes together in there. The flat is at numbers 20 to 41 St Mary's Mansions on St Mary's Terrace, just round the corner from Paddington Station in London. A beautiful big building and at the time of recording there are a couple of flats in the block up for sale, both at £1.75 million. So if Maddie did own it back then and hung around for another 20 odd years she could really have cashed in. The nearest tube station is Warwick Avenue on the Bakerloo line, and there's a branch of Travis Perkins right round the corner, which is handy if you need some guttering or pipes for your toilet. Creek Connections At 14 minutes 10 seconds, as the police officers interview Ingrid Strange, we see, in the background on a sideboard behind the gorilla, a blue lamp. The Blue Lamp was the name of a 1950 police procedural film starring Dick Bogart. After his death at the age of 78 in 1999, Bogart's ashes were scattered at his former estate in Crassé, southern France. Crassé is referred to by many as the world capital of perfume and is home to plantations of roses and jasmine, owned by several renowned brands such as Dior and Chanel. Coco Chanel, who set her company up in 1910, had a 10-year-long affair with the second Duke of Westminster, Hugh Grosvenor, who was known to his friends as Bender. A robot called Bender is one of the main characters in animated TV show Futurama co-created by David X. Cohen, who, before changing careers to become a comedy writer, was an academic with degrees in both physics and computer science. His most prominent scholarly paper was on the mathematical problem of pancake sorting. The pancake sorting problem was first posted by American geometer Jacob E. Goodman. He was born in the city of Lynn, Massachusetts. The current mayor of Ware is Thomas McGee, who shares his surname with the American soldier William McGee, who was posthumously awarded the US military's highest decoration, the Military of Honour, for his heroics in World War II. The award was made on the 26th of February 1946, and his family were no doubt still very proud about that the following day. February 27th is St. Simon's Day. Simon Day played the character of Jordan Strange in the House of Monkeys. I'm actually a bit scared. I, I didn't think I believed in a god until now, but this may well have persuaded me. As Victor Meldrew might say, if he heard about this and wanted to tell his wife about it, but she wasn't in the room, so he had to call her through. Margaret! Another Creek connection next time. Catch your creek on.
The House of Monkeys aired on 7th of June 1997 and let us leave no stone unturned in finding out all about what was going on in the world that day by delving into the history books, by which I mean Google. Singer Tom Jones turned 57, actor Liam Neeson turned 45 and Prince turned 39. It was exactly 668 years since Robert the Bruce died. It was Flag Day in Peru and Journalists' Day in Argentina. Con Air was the biggest film in cinemas worldwide, and the Detroit Red Wings beat the Philadelphia Flyers to win the Stanley Cup. Those teams got to the final of ice hockey's most prestigious trophy after beating the Seattle Fungus Beetles and the Salt Lake City Orphanage Burners in the respective semi-finals. More interesting than any of that, though, was the June edition of, quote, the world's best-selling UFO publication. It's called UFO Magazine, subtitle The Truth Is Out There. It was available on the shelves for what is, on the face of it, the reasonable price of £1.95. However, read the content within and that assertion becomes somewhat questionable. It included a feature about a triangle-shaped object shooting jerkily yet silently across the sky above Kent, not far from the house of then Home Secretary Michael Howard. There was a curious article about USOs, which I'm sure you're well aware means underwater submarine objects, which are UFOs which enter water. Apparently, there were several instances of these appearing above and within the North Atlantic Ocean around the time of the Second World War, but it all sounds like total bollocks to me. However, what grabbed my attention the most was a reader's letter on page 56, responding somewhat indignantly to a previous article in which a professional photo analyst had claimed that an unidentified flying object in a photograph was in fact either a swan or a goose. Mr S. Clinton from North East England wrote in on the matter, his letters entitled, Feathers Are Flying. Dear Sir, I am writing to you in response to an article entitled Major UFO Incident Over the Lancashire Coast from the April Issue. The photograph shown was said by the photo analyst to be that of a swan or a goose, but I can say with 100% certainty that this was not the case. I've been a bird watcher on and off for the past 17 years, and that photo does not represent any known bird I have encountered, for the following three reasons. 1. The object in the photo has wings which come to a point, whereas a swan or goose in flight has large rounded wings. Two. There are no signs of feet or a head on the photo. Both of these are very prominent features on swans and geese. 3. Swans and geese have a long thin neck. It doesn't show that on the photo. I showed the photo to a fellow birdwatcher in Sunderland who has far more experience than me, and he concluded that the object is not a swan or a goose, or indeed any other type of bird. As to what is depicted in the photo, I have no idea. That's it, that's how his uh, letter ends, just no idea. And the editor kind of meekly replies to this, I didn't think it was a swan or goose either, Mr. Clinton, so I'm on your side. They've reprinted the photo in question, and frankly, well, the object in it could be a bird, could be a plane, it could be a napkin being carried along by the breeze. It's absolutely impossible to say, as it's really grainy and of a shit quality. Yet, it's caused this massive fuss amongst a group of total dweebs 
who are probably still arguing about it to this day. God, I'm calling them dweebs. What am I doing with my life scouring through weird publications for stuff like this? God, maybe UFO should stand for unexciting frigging... I can't even think of a word beginning with O. Oblong? What? Let's move along. Thanks very much for listening to this episode and indeed the first series of Get Your Creek On. I hope you've found at least some of it fairly enjoyable or interesting or entertaining or a combination thereof. You can contact the show anytime. The email address is getyourcreekon at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at creekget. If you'd like to support the show, then the very best ways in which you can do so are by telling anyone who might like it about it, or by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts if they offer such a facility. You can dispatch with a small amount of your money by heading to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash getyourcreekon and donating the cost of a cup of coffee. That would be hugely appreciated. A big thank you to Twitter user at Creek Locations and of course to the very friendly Australian guy. There is going to be a little bit of a break before the start of Series 2, so please do brace yourself for a disruption in your consumption of this magnificent quality content. Although if you're listening to this way after it's released, then Series 2 is probably already up and available, so you've only got another minute or so to wait until the next episode begins, you lucky bugger. That's us for today. Thanks again for wasting some of your time listening to Get Your Creek On. I'm Toby, and I will catch you later. Later.